There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BVI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Bianca Miller-Cole, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. COVID-19 and the killing of George Floyd have emphasized society's race, class, and social quality fault lines. And we'll all be touching on those issues over the course of the series. And we all know with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections, with the guests sharing their favorite piece of music or soundtrack, representing a memorable stage of their life. And joining me today is a very special guest, Dr. Arlo Brady, who's going to discuss the growing correlation between environmental issues and social change. Arlo is the chairman of the Blue Marine Foundation and chief executive of Freud's, Freud's being the leading independent global top 40 PR agency, the largest communication agency certified as a B Corp and a 2021 Queen's Award for Enterprise winner. Arlo, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Now, let's start off with your first track of music, which is a remarkable piece of historical and glorious sound by Queen Radio Gaga. Why? I was a, I'm a 1980s boy. And uh, um, for me, when I look back at my childhood, one of the most iconic moments that's etched in my memory for a whole multiplicity of different reasons would be Live Aid. I grew up in Norfolk in England, in a very small village, in a very rural community. Uh, it didn't feel this way at the time, but it, it was probably pretty quiet um, and, you know, not the most dynamic and diverse community in the UK, putting it mildly. Um, and uh, nothing really happened, but Live Aid really happened. It was huge in my village and you know, everybody came out, you know, we're, I mean, it makes me feel really, really old, but I mean, you know, these tiny little TVs came out into the garden and everybody watched uh, watched what was going on. And that, that concert um, in Wembley with the iconic performance of, uh, of, of Radio, Gaga, Radio Gaga by Queen is really etched on my mind as, a, as just a memory of, of, of my childhood and also I would say possibly the beginning of a journey that I went on uh, in terms of wanting to have an impact in the world, because I, you know, it, it was it was one of the first moments, I believe, when, you know, some of the challenges around the world, poverty in Africa, for example, 
first was shared on our screens. You know, you didn't really see that kind of thing before then. And um, certainly, you know, I've, I've got an, in the same way I've got an enduring memory of Queen, I've also got this memory of the photographs of the children with flies in their eyes of the same age as me. And, you know, it was, uh, I remember thinking, you know, that's something that I want to do something about. Those are such overwhelming images, aren't they? I remember them likewise. If you could have gone to Live Aid at Wembley, would you have gone? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. It felt um, like a million miles away, I would say. Ironic, really, for me. I, I, I was, you know, because many years later in my career, in my career, I came to be actually working on Live Earth, which was the sort of modern equivalent of, of, of Live, Aid, Live Aid, but focused on the environment. And, you know, in, in the one case of the 1980s, there was I in this tiny village watching it on this, I, I don't actually think I had a color TV, like watching it on a little black and white TV, right, move forward to, uh, to, to Live Earth. And there I was, I was actually on the stage and uh, I remember, um, you know, sort of briefing uh, Metallica on climate change at the time. And you, you kind of think you just got to pinch yourself and think, is this is this really what's happening? I would love to have been there. What a performance. So you've had a very natural education, but of course, also a very formal education. And your father was a massively important icon for you as a learning example. Yeah, both my parents were, I think. I mean, I don't, I didn't, uh, I, I, I grew up in this tiny little village and went to what I think is fair to say is not the greatest school in the world. Um, but I had a lovely, I had a wonderful childhood, um, free from pressure or, um, you know, I don't remember being under any form of pressure at any point in time. The downside of that is I didn't really have many role models. Uh, and subsequently, I think we realise now how how important role models are on your life. The role model I had prop during my upbringing was my father, who, um, you know, came from both, both my parents actually were from inner city London. Uh, they grew up around sort of Beckton and Edmonton and that kind of area. And they were influenced in the 1960s by the, you know, the, the good life. And, the, you know, they really wanted to, to make a difference and, and, and move out and have me and my sister have a different life to what I think they had. And they, you know, were driven to change that. And they moved us out to the countryside, and as a result, we had a had a very different upbringing. And you know, my dad, in his early years, managed to get out of that community that he grew up in and travel around the world. He, you know, he was an air steward for British Airways, and I think probably was relatively glamorous at the time. And you know, I definitely remember thinking, you know, him telling me stories about all these amazing places around the world, which a lot of people in my school didn't have access to and uh, I don't think I want to go there and do that and uh, you know it did ironically it took me till I was 19 before I did actually get on a plane myself but um, I did eventually. So you kind of um, in some ways self-educated yourself and you you worked hard to get yourself through school? Uh, I worked hard to start with I would say I didn't really have any sense of 
I didn't have a clear sense of where I was. I still don't actually, but I didn't have a, a really clear sense of where I was going. I wouldn't say I had a, a great sense of direction or, or ambition. I, I definitely had a big sense of purpose and public service, if you can call it that. You know, my parents were really big activists. Uh, they were, you know, some of my earliest memories are at the American military base in Greenham Common, sort of shaking barbed wire. I don't know why I was shaking. I didn't know why I was shaking it, but I remember being there for the barbed wire. And I remember sitting in the middle of Hyde Park Lane, chanting various things about Margaret Thatcher, which probably weren't very polite. Um, so my, you know, my, my upbringing kind of emboldened me to want to have a sense of purpose, but I don't think I ever really knuckled down at school I wasn't I matured much later if indeed I am mature now um, you got yourself to having a master's degree in environmental technology so you did do well and a PhD in environmental issues yeah I mean I'm pretty determined <laughs> okay you know I think that determination uh, and and uh inquisitiveness goes a long way in this life and I you know I'm I was lucky enough thanks to my parents not to my school to have been brought up in an environment where there weren't really clear about although I didn't have a um, clear ambition there also weren't boundaries I didn't feel like there were weren't things that I could do could do I always felt as though I could do anything I wanted I was always told I could do anything I wanted now, whether that was true or not, sort of neither here nor there, but I always felt like I could do whatever I wanted. And I, I think certainly in my teens and 20s, I was probably pretty pushy. I mean, you know, I think I was, I probably put a bit of pressure on those institutions to, uh, to, to, to get me in there. And I, you know, I was, uh, I don't know, probably I took a few financial risks that I wouldn't necessarily have taken if I'd have been aware of the consequences of taking those financial risks. But you, you've honed in on environmental realities. Yeah. And why was that? How did you capture that world of passion so quickly? I think it probably, I mean, it, it does all ultimately all go back to my parents who were... Um, who are uh, into the environment in a in a big way, and I was always aware of some of the environmental challenges that uh, you know the, the world faced. And you know, when when I was uh, in my early teens, my dad did a degree um, through the Open University, and um, I think he left. I don't actually know. I think he either left school at fourteen or sixteen. I'm not sure which one, but. He didn't stay there very long either way and he did a degree much later in life and he ended up focusing on uh, various different environmental topics and i remember sort of going into his the room where he did all that work when i was very young and you know there were microscopes and things that used to come in these big polystyrene boxes from the open university and i would open them up and have a look inside and i suppose that's what got me probably enthusiastic about some of these topics but then I've always, you catch me today sitting in an office, it's pretty unusual to catch, I don't like being indoors. I've always been an outdoors person. I love the environment and, uh, you know, I love being outside and there's that, that also plays a big part into my, uh, into my desire to make a difference in that, in that space. And David Attenborough, featured large in your thinking? 
He did. And, you know, I watched all of those programs when I was a, was a kid. Interestingly, he didn't make the connection, I wouldn't say. Mm. I mean, I don't, you know, God help us to be critical of David Attenborough, but, you know, he certainly inspired in me a great passion for nature and the environment, mm. along with others like Jane Goodall. Yes. But, but I don't think they necessarily drew the connection to some of the sort of macro environmental challenges that we face until relatively recently and certainly the programming that they created wasn't activist you know it did bring a generation of people into conservation that probably otherwise wouldn't have been uh, and and respect for the world but you know things like blue peter when i look back as a child you know those kinds of things would also have had a big impact on me and my way of thinking and scout i know perhaps that's not so trendy these days but you know in my village it was a big thing and you know you got all the badges for that kind of stuff now your second track of music is three little birds by bob marley and that really conjures up some very interesting memories it does yeah so when i um when i started my PhD at Cambridge, I, which was all a, you know, it was a very, it was a bit of a, a strange environment for me. You know, I, I always felt like a, a bit of an outsider turning up there, but I met my wife there, hmm. uh, or the person that would later become my wife. Um, and she was also studying uh, uh, for a master's, which then turned into a PhD, but in, in uh, development studies and international affairs. And she spent a lot of, a bit, she had a big focus on uh, the Caribbean, particularly Jamaica, which is, I, I'm sure you know, is, is poorer than meets the eye. Uh, it, it, they do a pretty good, you know, it's known as a tourist destination. I don't think people often look at some of the other challenges there. And um, I got to go with her, you know, so this was around the time that I started to travel and uh, um, I had a, a rather healthy, up until that point, I had paid for everything myself and uh, taken out loans and what have you. But at that point I, I won a scholarship to go to Cambridge, uh, which sort of was, certainly it felt healthy for me. It wouldn't feel healthy now, but it, it felt like I had money to spare. And I managed to go out to the Caribbean a few times with my wife and I not really, you know, reggae hadn't reached Norfolk. Well, maybe it had, but it, but it hadn't reached my village. And um, yeah, I, I loved it. And, I, you know, I, I just, I, it was a whole new experience to me. So uh, yeah, Bob Marley. Mm. Now this time you were in the early stages of your, what some would call career, you were, you were going to be with a different agency, but you ended up, so kind of not quite by mistake, but meeting Matthew Freud, who was just on his way up. Now you're, of course, CEO of Freud. Yeah. What was that experience like of trying to figure out where you sit? As I said earlier, I mean, I never really had absolute clarity on what I wanted to do. And I'm always suspicious of people that have absolute clarity about what they want to achieve in life. Um, but uh, I had... I think probably I had gone all the way through the educational system, assuming that I would become a, a, a professor, a, te you know, a teacher. Um, 
and I'd finished my PhD and I'd started to do some teaching. And to be honest, I don't know that I really enjoyed it. I wrote a book about my research called The Sustainability Effect um, and, and you know, then started to do various bits and pieces of teaching. And it shows you how far the world has moved on because it's not that long ago. I know I'm a bit old, but not that old. We're talking 15 years ago. I didn't get a very good reaction on the <laughs> MBA, for example, that I was teaching on to the topic. You know, I would have been focused on sustainability and corporate responsibility, citizenship, whatever you might choose to call it, you know, ESG these days. Um, I did not receive a positive response to my lectures, not at all, to the extent that people, I remember, you know, one particular moment with a guy sort of stood up. It, it was difficult because as an academic, I suppose I was in my 20s when I had my early 20s when I had my PhD. And you stand up there in front of these people who've paid quite a lot of money for mm -hmm. an MBA, to, to participate in an MBA. And they've all got sort of 10 years experience at the coalface working. And they sort of look at you as this young whippersnapper. Um, and, uh, you know, this guy, this American guy stood up and he said, you know, this is all very well, but this is not how it works. And I remember going away feeling really bad after that, that I ought to perhaps actually go out to the real world. And given that what I had chosen to focus on was a practical subject, maybe I should actually be practical. Hmm. I decided to go out there and look at what a, a career in the real world might look like. And um, at the time, the chairman of the business school was the, was the CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, very famous advertising agency. Um, and, uh, you know, I went over to see him and it was all quite captivating. It's a great industry that, um, you know, it wasn't quite Mad Men, but, it, you know, it felt exciting and dynamic and it, totally the opposite of a sort of dusty Harry Potter-like world that mm. I had come from um, and uh, he said we've well, got to meet this guy Matthew Freud because you know he, he's at the, at, the, at the time I was my real area of expertise I suppose it still is to be fair was looking at environmental and social issues and how they impact reputation of mm. individual of large companies mainly but of individuals and you know I explained this to this guy at Sarch he says you've got to meet Matthew you know, he's doing some really exciting stuff and I had a pretty dim view I would say of PR um, as mo I think quite a lot of people probably do um, and uh, I thought that it was all about sort of painting over cracks and this kind of stuff and I met Matthew and I was uh, it was around the time that he was um, helping to launch and uh, develop and launch product red um, mm -hmm. And I was really captivated by the idea that this was, an, a, you know, a, a world where you had terrific influence and you could make things, not only respond. I never wanted to be, I didn't join consultancy to respond. I don't like the idea of waiting for people to suggest what you need, what, what needs to be done. I like people sort of sharing their challenges and problems and then letting you have a go at thinking mm. through how you go about tackling. So you did end up though taking on a very controversial project once you 
join Freud's. Blood Diamonds? Yeah, my first project was actually, um, so, so Freud's is quite well known for film publicity. Mm. And uh, Warner Brothers was one of our big clients. And uh, because I was the person that knew about social responsibility, um, and there was a fear that uh, the film Blood Diamond wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, might not be so successful because some of the companies that uh, that are in that industry m might s might want to suggest that this film is uh, is not worth watching, and, and we knew that we wanted to get the message out there. So I was drafted in uh, to see whether I could could help and it uh, you know it's controversial it's controversial topic but i felt like i was on the right side of it and um you know i saw firsthand the incredible influence that a film can have mm -hmm. if it's aimed at the general public rather than you know uh, that that often so often in this world of social environmental responsibility, people aim very carefully thought out messages to um, small groups of people. And, you know, you end up, it's not helped by social media these days where people live in the echo chamber that they've designed themselves, like a prison that you design for yourself and you only listen to the people around you and you get positive affirmation of what you're saying. Nobody ever says anything. Some of these big films can, are able to break, take a, a message simplify it and blast it through to a bigger audience and i i was really taken by that um and uh, yeah i've loved uh, being involved in the film world ever since did it make you at that point did it make you feel that you were dealing with inclusion and diversity themes and how much did that feature in your life at that point um it did i've always I suppose it that was probably the beginning of a awakening on that topic. I don't think it was necessarily at the front of my mind, certainly in the early years. I've already talked about the little village that I grew up in. Uh, I don't think I met many diverse, but there are plenty of people from socially challenged backgrounds, mm, for sure. Mm. Um, but I didn't meet many people from uh, different racial backgrounds until I went to university, I wouldn't say. Uh, in fact, I think I can say with some certainty that I, there was one black kid who was from, from the USAF. And I remember came in for one, like one term at school and that was, that was it. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, this is why I think education is such an important thing. Not that, I mean, my education wasn't very good. And I think that I, you know, equally, I could have done with being taught my times tables and English grammar properly. But at the same, you know, black history is not really, you know, certainly wasn't taught when I was there. So, you know, as I've, I'm always on a learning journey. It's a nice thing about my job. Nice thing about being a consultant is that you get to tap into so many different worlds. And uh, that probably was my first tapping into to, to, uh, Africa and mm -hmm. development issues. Um, and I have done an awful lot in that space ever since. Um, mm. But I still, I you know, the George Floyd situation uh, caused me to 
to, to do a little more learning on the topic of, uh, of, of, of diversity in the US. And, you know, it, it's, just a it's just a shocking situation to, to actually realize that, that all this stuff, no one's ever told you all this stuff, you have to go looking for it, properly looking for it. It's not, um, no one's articulated it in a way that is, uh, you know, put in front of you on a regular basis. Do you feel like you had a lot of catching up to do? Yeah, I still think uh, I still think I have. I mean, you know, I, I don't know whose fault that is, but um, for sure, um, I start from behind the curve. Hmm. But you're, you're very much your strong theme still remains around environment. You have a great loving passion for mm -hmm. the marine world. Uh, I love the fact that that you were involved in environmentally advising Metallica to make sure that for their performance, <laughs> they, they got it right. Now, was that something that was just, how sensitive were they? Yeah, you have to be careful here. I mean, the, the issue was that these people, there, there were a number of bands actually on that day. I spoke to quite a few famous people on that day as they came out on stage. And it, it, the real issue was, they needed to understand a little bit more about climate science if they were going to go out on the stage at a concert focused on the environment and and ask people to turn their lights out or whatever else it was that they happened to be asking so you know, it was effectively a briefing and um, it was quite a long time ago now and i i wonder whether you wouldn't have to do quite so much work these days because mm. i think that climate um is a much something that climate change is something people are much more aware of now across demographics not necessarily on a global basis i think there are definitely you know if you went to the middle of america or, or certainly some big parts of china you wouldn't necessarily get a, a very clear understanding of, of what's going on but uh, yeah i mean things have moved on dramatically since the time that i was talking to metallica ex attempting to explain the greenhouse effect uh, to them <laughs> and you've embedded yourself now as chairman of the blue marine foundation what what is it that you really what's your key objective that you're still longing to achieve with that foundation well i've been uh, i started out so so I, I told you a little bit about blood diamond i suppose that drove a, an interest for me in film as a medium mm. for for helping people to um understand a complicated subject um, you know, in these days when people only have time to read a tweet or something like that, you know, they don't have a film is one of those very rare moments when you capture someone and you can sit there and, and sort of have them focused on a topic for a while. And, um, you know, I, I met the team, I met the guy that wrote a book called The End of the Line 10 years ago, which is about overfishing, a guy called Charles Clover. And he and some friends had decided to make a book, a film about his, his book. Um, and uh, I had been working on a lot of uh, cause related films at that point. And uh, I thought what they were doing was fascinating. And uh, I met them after they had produced this film. And, you know, they were talking about setting up an NGO, something which I felt was you know, the film suggested that in order to tackle overfishing, you need to set up marine reserves. So at the time, a very, you know, a huge, not that big actually, but a big portion of the world's land mass is protected. 
uh, even though 70% of the surface of the earth is ocean, uh, a very small percentage of the ocean is protected. So the film concluded you needed to protect vast swathes of ocean. Mm. Uh, and I uh, joined this group and uh, together over a 10 year period, we have, I think, protect, you know, worked with partners to protect, you know, over 4 million square kilometers of ocean. Um, mm. I think we double, you know, we double global marine reserves in the first year of our operation, which was terrifically exciting. Um, and we need to continue on that path, you know, that, that we need, the ocean needs as much protection, if not more protection than land. Um, you know, the, the ocean is the world's largest carbon sink, for example. We believe that at least 30% of the world's ocean needs to be protected by 2030. And, you know, that's, that's what we're really laser focused on at, at this point. And that has significant conservation outcomes, but it also has significant carbon outcomes if done in the correct way. Um, so that's what's... Uh, yeah, what I'm really engaged by. But I wanted to come back briefly on something you said, which is that I'm really, so I am really focused on the environment, that is true. But I think that people often see these topics in too much isolation. Mm. They see them in silos and none of these topics are siloed topics. So climate change, as an example, is a, a is a, is a social as much a social justice issue as it is a conservation issue for example depending it depends which way you look at it and people often only look at it from one direction mainly because you know the core of people that are pushing uh, for change on climate are environmentalists pure environmentalists but if you look out of the box the people that are going to be most affected by climate change are the poorest people in the world mm. poorest people in the world uh, are not people in the UK and America. Um, you'll see, you know, in big chunks of Africa, big chunks of uh, Asia. Um, so I guess I don't see my passion for environment as being something that's to the exclusion of some of those other issues that sit around the outside. That's why you know, I've tried to orientate Freud's around the global goals, the sustainable, the 17 sustainable development goals, because I think that it's important that we always, that we don't lose sight of the multiplicity of all these different topics that all interrelate with one another. It's good the way that you've put them together because they are of common theme. And it probably has to be fairly said that if people don't care about one, they're probably unlikely to care about other parts of the circle. So treating the whole of the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals mix as a necessary dignity for all is, is a foundational requirement, absolutely. Let's just go on briefly to your third piece of music, Dean Lewis, Waves, which it's not environmental waves, is it? Well, I guess you could think of it in that way, couldn't you? I mean, I think actually it's got a pretty negative connotation of the, 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 <laughs> the song itself, which is to say, that I think uh, Dean is an Australian guy, Dean Lewis, and I think he was interviewed once and he said that this particular track is about, is telling the story of how, you know, every year that passes, life gets less and less exciting and more challenging. But that's irrespective of why he wrote that song, that's not why I like it. So I have a, um, I have nine-year-old twins, boys, 
who are very boisterous and into singing and uh, they love this song for some reason and uh, we have a karaoke thing in the car the screen on the car turns into a karaoke machine and um, they just love singing this song um, and they will sing it at any given opportunity and now it's become a bit of a standing joke in our family so mm. Mm. It reminds me of my children who are um, my delight it certainly keeps you happy which is lovely it does so looking forward a little bit there are great ambitions for how the world needs to change you talked about the oceans being the greatest pool for receiving and absorbing carbon what are you, what is your ambition what do you believe is a realistic ambition for the big emitters in the world yeah well i look i mean i think it's a it, i've always tried to encourage people to think of climate change as the challenge of our generation you know i don't like the idea that people put a lot of um expectation on one moment in history i don't think the change works like that i think it's uh, it can be very disempowering to you know get people to really pin all their hopes to one moment and then that one if you can recall if you know your uh, if you know your cops similar thing happened with the cop many years ago in in copenhagen when there was a lot of expectation on a breakthrough and then it didn't happen and people were like so distressed in the aftermath of it what i think is happening at the moment is that across demographics across uh, um, industries across political boundaries people accept that climate change is real it's happening it's caused by us and people are um, coming together to make a change um, and I think we need to encourage that action wherever it comes from. However, um, the action that's taken by America, China and India really is the only game in town. Um, and we have to hope that those three nations against, you know, that they don't seem to be getting on particularly well at the moment in political terms, to put it mildly, we have to hope that they manage to find it in themselves to come together and voluntarily commit to uh, yeah. to reducing uh, carbon emissions far faster um, than they had before. And we have to hope that they commit to uh, a financial package which makes some of the inevitable changes that are already in train less painful for the world's poor um, because it is one thing for us to entirely focus ourselves around the idea that you know we need to build wind turbines and buy electric cars it's quite another to think of the consequence of the change which is already occurring and won't is not re reversible mm. so we've got We've got serious ambitions, but are your hopes as equal to your ambitions? I meet, you know, one of the wonderful things about the role that I have now is that I meet a lot of influential people. And across the board, I these days, I rarely meet anybody that thinks 
that more concerted effort on the agenda is, is a bad thing. Um, and that gives me great hope. Not only, I'm not saying everywhere, but you, you know, a lot of high streets, you could go and wander down the high street and talk to people about climate change and they would get it in a way that they didn't get it five years ago. In the UK, in America, in Australia, um, you will definitely get people's understand. They understand this topic now, um, and that is um, and that is amplified in boardrooms. I find I know it's easy to be negative about corporations and brands, but uh, the the transformation journey that we need to go on as a world is unbelievable. It's huge. It's a massive challenge. Um, and we need all of these people to be engaged. And by and large, a lot of them are. Um, we just need our politicians to be just as brave um, as the man and woman on the street and some of the corporate leaders that I talk to today. You rightly said you meet so many influential people, the World Economic Forum, many other scenarios where business leaders come together clearly there has been a gripping of environmental responsibility and understanding do you think we could get the same lasered focus on inclusion diversity uh, black race issues the kind of things that were so in the forefront of 2020's headlines on 2021 race headline could we get the same focus on those issues well two things one i think we need to make sure the focus that we have so, so that so racial uh, diversity and inclusion issues are embedded in some of the other topics that we're talking about and we need mm. to make sure that we understand that they are embedded in, in there and yeah i think we can but it's going to require a lot more effort because there are, you know, representation at a senior level in companies, uh, in politics, is just not there. Um, and when there isn't a voice, it's incumbent on those people who, who come from a different background to take, take up the mantle and push it. And, uh, you know, so that, that I think the priority is to try and uh, find those people, individuals, and push them to prioritise this topic. I think it, it certainly can be. I mean, I, I only, you know, it, it's been a year or so. Um, and I think certainly the George Floyd uh, tragedy has changed how a lot of my clients deal with this topic um but as you do digging as you learn more about it you realize that this is a much bigger problem than meets the eye and it's whether there's enough energy for radical intervention in the way that there is becoming yes. for the environment well i believe that there is but i think that um it doesn't need to evolve through agitation this is ironic coming from me given that you know i grew up in a family who protested a lot um but 
as I probably would say to my dad, Margaret Thatcher didn't leave for quite some time. So, I mean, it, you know, it, I don't know how successful that protesting was. You know, I look at Extinction Rebellion now on, on, in the climate space and, uh, you know, I think that when, it, when Extinction Rebellion started, there was a very low level in the UK of awareness of climate change and the action that needed to be taken. So they, were, they decided to be agitators and go out there and agitate. And mm. that was what was necessary at the time. Mm. But now most people, uh, you know, across demographics do believe that action needs to be mm. taken. So the right course of action to, bring, be, to, to engage people on that topic is not to block the M25, for example, in my humble opinion. Um, and I think the same is true on this topic. It's not about um, it's not about agitating. I think it's about um, and, and pointing blame. I think it's about helping people to understand the opportunity. If you take a business like mine, for example, um, you know our job is marketing and communicating to. UK to 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 to, to uh, communities around the world, and in order to do that, we need to be reflective of those communities. It's very difficult to be uh, to to create good communication strategies that are inclusive and that that hit the target audience and resonate if you are developing them in an ivory tower. So, you know, for my industry, um, there's an opportunity, huge opportunity. And I think that's the way to position it. It's also something which takes a lot of time. You know, if I had my time again, I think I would probably make films. I never thought that you could make films. Nobody ever told me that you could actually go into that and do something like that. That's, you know, so cool. I guess mm. I could still do that at some stage, but I never realised that was a possibility. In my industry, young black people, I think, do not grow up thinking that PR marketing is for them. Um, come to think of it, I don't think that's the case in Muslim communities. Or yeah, I think it's a very specific demographic. And that needs to change really before, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a systemic thing. It's not just about companies like mine making, uh, you know, saying the right thing and making small changes. It's also about um, education and the next generation coming on in a different way. It definitely is. And you've encapsulated how you think about change Let's just talk for the last moment about how you think about the kind of pledge you want to make for the future, for you, Arlo Brady, for maybe for your company, but for the issues you care about so deeply. If you were to think of a pledge that really deeply will matter to you in the next decades, what might it be? I've already given it away, really. I mean, I, I, I feel as though... Um you need to focus in, you know, in uh, one of the wonderful things about being in consultancy is you get to do so many different things. I have a unique opportunity and influence to make a difference on the, 
uh, oceans agenda. I really want to help to protect 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a huge, uh, heavy lift. Um, but I think we can get there. Uh, and that gives you one, ex you know, that's, that's what I really feel I can contribute to. But, um, you know, there are also a number of other, um, if you look at the global goals, there are 17 similar uh, ambitions. And I like to think that in my own small way, we, I can make an impact on some of those other um, goals as well. And bear in mind that they're all interrelated and interwoven together with one another. So I don't, I don't feel as though it's a, a sort of a, a singularity of objective. So a more sustainable, but a more just world combined. Exactly. Well, sadly, that's all the time we've had today. And we could always talk on for so much longer. But thank you, Arlo. Thank you so much, Arlo Brady, for joining me today, opening up about your fascinating life journey and your remarkable relationships and your aspirations. I know this episode will stay with us for a very long time. Please join us next time on the BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, a business leader or a famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review, leave your feedback wherever you get your podcast from. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and your opinion on business, social justice and a fair society, please contact us at podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.